Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Dave Hintz, the college pastor. He gets the rare privilege of preaching from the pulpit. And so let me pray before uh, we get started. Father God, we do thank you just for today. We thank you for the wonderful uh, autumn weekend we've been able to celebrate. Lord, as we come before you and as your word is to be presented, might it be a fragrant offering to you. Might you be pleased with not only the preaching, but the reception of the word uh, today. We pray for the hearts of these men and women that your Holy Spirit will soften them so that the, your, your word will be firmly planted within them. And we pray for me that I will preach in a manner that pleases and honors you. And we pray above all, Lord, that you will be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's the summer of 2000 when a friend of mine asked if I might be interested in competing in a triathlon. Now, I was biking and swimming on alternating days, so I thought, okay, I'll do the biking and the swimming while she does the running. So I trained as best I could. I've never competed in a triathlon before, and I found out that it was very different than I originally anticipated. The big day came, and the Boise YMCA had their annual Why Not Triathlon, and I looked around at the swimming competition. I noticed people of old age and young, uh, in shape, out of shape. And there was even a, a pregnant woman there. And so I thought, you know, this really can't be too bad. I could probably finish in the top 10. And, and so I got ready, loosened up, and they blew the whistle, fired the gun, and we all ran into the water. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen Discovery Channel when they have Carnivorous Fish Week. Have you ever seen those underwater pictures of all the school of piranhas circling and devouring that poor unsuspecting cow and there's just blood and flesh and bubbles all over the place? Well, that's what it looked like underwater. I was getting whacked in the head. I was getting kicked, scratched in the legs. Whenever I turned to breathe, all the lapping water would force it into my mouth. And next thing you knew, I was in a dead heat with the pregnant woman. But one of the scariest things about it was as I was swimming, I was totally confused and lost because unlike a swimming pool where you have those nice black lanes that guide you to the wall, there was no such thing. It's just a green, dark, murky lake. Well, I managed to finish and I did beat the pregnant lady. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be telling you the story. But I'll never forget the confusion that I felt during that time. I just was in absolute, complete chaos and confusion. Now, some of you could probably relate to this when you share the gospel. Perhaps you are sharing Christ with someone and you go to talking about Jesus, to talking about sin, to why if Jesus were alive today, he would vote for Tom McClintock, or perhaps why he... You know, evolution is a wicked heresy from Satan. And, and you look up at the end of the gospel presentation and you find out that the person that you're sharing with is more confused than you are, right? We've just been in that, in that mode. And unfortunately, we look at how well we plan out our lives, how we set goals and how we set objectives. Yet when we go out and we share the gospel, many times we are directionless and we are confused and we are rendered ineffective. Now, can you imagine if you were a soldier in a platoon that was completely disorganized? There was no formations. Nobody knew how to cover one another. You had no general strategy for engaging in battle, and you're just set free. Well, you're vulnerable on two levels. One, you are vulnerable to the enemy. He will prey upon a disorganized platoon. 
Secondly, you are ineffective to the general and to the operation of your army because you don't fit into the general strategy and the general objectives what they are trying to achieve. So what we are going to do today is we're going to look at four keys to successful evangelism so that you can align your ministry with God's objectives for his glory. How do you measure successful evangelism? And to do that, we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. And we're going to look at four keys. One, you must be conquered from verse 14. Two, you must please God alone from 15a. Three, you must not focus on results, 15b through 16. And four, you must respect the gospel. So for those of you who are at 2 Corinthians 2, 14, follow me as I read. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us a sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one an aroma from death to death, but to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of men. Now, to understand this passage, you have to understand what's going on at the Corinthian church at this time. Now, this was a church that was mired by strife, discord, dissension, disunity. I mean, everything that is true of a dysfunctional church was true of this one. And so Paul, who dearly loved this church, spent a year and a half of his life ministering to this body When he heard concerns about it, he penned 1 Corinthians. And shortly after he penned 1 Corinthians in an attempt to correct them, he decided to pay them what is known as the painful visit, in which he would follow up on the rebukes in 1 Corinthians. And the reason why it was painful was when he confronted them, when he confronted the false teachers, this congregation that he embraced and that that he loved hung him out to dry. They offered no support from him and allowed these false teachers to persist in discrediting him and his ministry. So Paul, not wanting to concede the battle to Satan, decides to pen a severe letter indicting the church for their lack of support and their all-around ungodliness. Paul describes how difficult it was to pen this letter in 2 Corinthians 2.4 where he laments, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul loved this church. He loved this church so much that he wanted to see them repent of their wickedness. And he wanted them to be restored to him so that they might be restored to God. And so he sent the letter through Titus and had to wait to see how they would respond. And Paul, not wanting to waste a moment of his life, decided to make the most of the opportunity and start a ministry in Troas. And we read about that in Second Second Corinthians 2.12, where Paul writes, And now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Now the door being open is symbolic of having a successful, vibrant ministry. This is something that Paul prays for at the end of Colossians, where he asked that they might pray that God might open a door for the gospel. People were probably coming to Christ. The word was being proclaimed. It was a fruitful, wonderful ministry. And you'd have to ask, Paul, why would you ever leave this? Isn't this what you're looking for? 
But we read in the following verse that he did leave. In verse 13, he says, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. So how is it that Paul can walk away from such a wonderful ministry? Why would he leave it all behind? Well, his conclusion, as we're going to see in 2.14 through 17, is it doesn't matter where he goes. As long as he practices the keys for a successful ministry. No matter where Paul goes, irrespective of the results, as long as he practices these four things, his ministry is always successful. The first key is that you must be conquered. The first key to having a successful ministry is you must be conquered. And this we get from 2.14, where Paul writes, But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. See, the reason why Paul has tremendous confidence in this ministry and knows that he has the freedom to go anywhere is because God always leads him in his triumph. Now, when you hear the word triumph, Roman ears heard it differently. What a Roman heard was a grand celebration to the glory of Rome. See, whenever a Roman general engaged in a battle and won, the Senate would then convene and evaluate whether or not the tri- this victory is worthy of a triumph. Namely, it could not be a civil war. And secondly, it must be a tremendous victory for Rome, namely capturing more land. And so once the Senate decided that they were going to have a triumph, the whole city of Rome would get ready to celebrate. They'd build big, tall, elaborate scaffolding. And then they would burn incense and cast garlands, and then they would engage in a victory parade. They'd have the Roman Senate parading, giving tribute to the general. They would have various people carrying pictures of the cities that they sacked. They'd have rolling stages in which thespians would reenact victorious battles of combat. They would also have the spoils of war, and then they would march the enemy soldiers as slaves and the enemy king would march throughout the city to hissing and booing and would eventually meet their demise and be executed once their usefulness in celebrating the triumph was over. And then you'd have the victorious soldiers, but then you'd also have in a chariot the victorious Roman general who would just soak in all the praise and adoration as if he was a god. This was his celebration to his glory, to the glory of Rome. In the same way, Paul sees his ministry as a parade, not to honor this Roman general, but to honor God, his conqueror. Now, it's interesting when Paul gives thanks to God, he thanks him for leading him in his triumph. Where Paul does not regard himself as a fellow conquering soldier as much as he regards himself as a conquered slave of Christ. The one-time enemy of the cross of Christ, the coat check boy to the stoning of Stephen, the leader of the band of stormtroopers who went from house to house ravaging the church, has been conquered for Christ. And unlike the disgruntled conquered soldiers who would scorn and burn inside at the victory of the Roman general. This was a conquered captive, a conquered soldier who rejoiced in his heart that the Lord had rescued him from the domain of darkness and transferred him into the domain of his beloved son. 
He rejoices. Paul has become a one-man victory parade where he is a trophy of God's victory in his life. In the same way, when we share the gospel, we must make sure that our lives are a trophy of God's victory, that God's reign, which we are proclaiming to the world, is true in our life that we focus on the Lord, that we focus on giving glory to the Lord, that we don't focus much on us, but on the Roman general, God, who is parading behind us. Our lives are only useful in sharing the gospel in that they magnify God alone. You cannot glorify God and yourself at the same time. See, often when we share the gospel, we might be tempted to focus on either ourselves and maybe our lives, or perhaps on the other person that we're sharing with. But that is not what it means to lead in triumph. To lead in triumph means you focus on God. Consider the gospel presentation that we read in Revelation 14.7. When an angel goes around the world circumventing it and proclaiming the one true gospel, this is what he says. He says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. God is presented as the magnificent creator, the coming king, the one who will judge all people and the rightful recipient of our worship. That is a gospel presentation that is focused on God. And in the same way, when we preach the gospel, we need to make sure that our lives have been conquered, that the focus of our lives is upon God, that the message of our lips matches the message of our lives. See, if your life is not under the lordship of Christ, if he is not your king, then what you need to do before you can even preach the gospel is to receive the gospel. So often I talk to people who give me a prayer request of praying for their unsaved family members or mother or their friends. And my immediate response is, I'll be praying for your salvation primarily. See, if you want to share the gospel if you want to be successful you need to be a living example of it namely you need to be saved and if you are saved you need to actively be living a life of a conquered slave where every area of your life is yielded to the lord consider matthew sixteen twenty four, where jesus says if anyone wishes to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me you must rescind the rulership of your own life and see it as your absolute resolve to magnify and glorify christ if you don't you become like the vegan meat salesman or the drunken aa counselor you don't have the life to back up the message of your lips if you proclaim as christ as king you proclaim him as Lord, then he better be your Lord. So you, like Paul, are a, in a victory parade, a celebration of the conquering of the Lord Jesus Christ who has rescued you from the domain of darkness. So you must ask yourself, have you been conquered? Is your life devoted to the Lord? Let me ask you a question so you might be able to diagnose whether or not you've been conquered. If someone were to follow you around for a week, what would they say is the most important thing in your life? Your friends, your family, perhaps the Lakers or maybe the Cubs? Work? What would they say is the most important thing in your life? If it's anything other than God, then there is something wrong. Perhaps you don't know the Lord or perhaps you have strayed from the Lord. 
But what you must do to make it right is to rescind rulership of your life. Give dominion of those areas that you have held on to to the Lord. Let him control you so that you might be able to glorify him through your life. So that you might echo the sentiments of Psalm 115.1 where the psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name. Give glory because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. When you are conquered, you are so focused on the Lord and unfocused on yourself that you are freed up to freely glorify God and you are impervious to many of the trials that might prevent you from sharing your faith. For instance, suffering. How do people make us suffer today? They don't kill us. They wound our ego. They make fun of us. They alienate us. They don't talk to us. They might call you a Bible banger or think that you're a Jesus freak, right? But that's just wounding our ego. You see, if you are dead to yourself and you don't care about the opinion of others, you are solely consumed with God's glory and the opinion of man. For instance, a dead body doesn't care if people insult it. A dead body doesn't care if you kick it. You can shoot a dead body a thousand times and is unaffected by it. Similarly, if you are dead to yourself and alive to Christ, then you will not care how people regard you. The only opinion that you're caring about is people's opinion of the God you serve and of the coming king. So number one, you must be conquered. You must repent of all sin. You must have your life right with Christ. And you must proclaim and demonstrate the God who is leading you in triumph as a conquering king. The next point that we have is from verse 15, is that you must please God alone. From verse 15, we we read, For we are the fragrance of Christ to God. Paul's work as a minister of the gospel really impacts the universe on two fronts. Horizontally, from Paul to man, and vertically, from Paul to God. And the primary concern that Paul has is that of pleasing the Lord. He writes, we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Now, the idea behind fragrance is that of a sacrificial offering. For instance, in the Old Testament, we read repeatedly when they burn a sacrificial offering, it is known as a soothing aroma to God. It is something that God is pleased. He loves sacrifice. He loves devotion to him at the expense of worldly goods and worldly possessions and comfort. It's a soothing aroma. Now, in the same way, Paul is comparing his service for the gospel as a sacrifice, but not just any sacrifice. He says we are the aroma of Christ, that somehow Paul's sacrifice is intermingled with Christ's sacrifice, that they're both strongly linked together. We see a similar relationship in Colossians 1.24. Why doesn't everybody turn there? Colossians 1.24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now when I read this many years ago, the first time I thought, wait a second, Paul, are you saying that there is something lacking in Christ's affliction? What could possibly be lacking in the substitutionary atonement of Christ? What can possibly be lacking in that glorious event that happened that Friday afternoon and the subsequent resurrection? Well, God's purpose is to reconcile the world to himself, to gather the elect. And there's two things that must happen for that. One, his son must suffer and die. And two, 
the message of the suffering and death and resurrection of his son must be taken through Christ-like couriers to the ends of the world. The suffering that his son endured will be mimicked by the suffering of his followers. You read repeatedly, Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they hate the master, they will hate the servant. And this is what happened with Paul. In his quest to take the gospel to the world, he suffered. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was falsely accused, conspired against, stoned, etc. Because he was preaching the message of Christ. See, God is concerned with how faithful we are to being a fragrant sacrificial offering. How faithful we are to do the things and the activities that honor and glorify him. And for Paul, it meant sacrifice. It meant perseverance. Where God was concerned about how he went about preaching the gospel. Was it for his glory? And when Paul encountered any obstacle, anything that might hinder him to the absolute calling he's given on his life, did he give up or did he persevere in spite of the suffering and in spite of the persecution? God is concerned with faithfulness, with exertion, and with the effort. Growing up, my dad would sit down with me and go over my report card. And whenever I came across a subpar grade, he'd look at me and say, son, is, is this the best you can do? And if I said yes, he'd say, that's good enough for me. See, God is concerned not with the final grades, not with the results, as we'll see in the next point, but in the exertion, in the effort, in the perseverance. So you must ask yourself, are you persevering? Is your life, is your testimony, is your ministry of the gospel a fragrant offering to him? Are you giving it your all? Are you giving it a sacrifice? You see, we must do our best because God is not satisfied with the ends because he's in charge of the ends, but what he is satisfied with, with the means. And this is the culture that we live in where it doesn't matter if a basketball plays plays basketball player plays dirty on the court has boorish behavior off the court as long as he can bring home a championship that's fine but in christianity in our ministry it's not the ends that justifies the means in fact the means are the ends god is concerned with your labor your exertion and your faithfulness because you have no control over the final result so ask yourself are you a fragrant aroma to christ are you sacrificing? Do you see your evangelism? Do you see your ministry as a fragrant aroma to God? Are you doing it? And are you doing so faithfully? And if you are, let's look at the next point. If you're faithfully sharing the faith, you should not worry about results. So that's point number three. You must not focus on results. With Paul, as we see in the next verse, he was consumed with glorifying God. He was consumed with that vertical relationship that the horizontal results of his evangelistic ministry were inconsequential. If you look at verse 15, he says, For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one an aroma from death to death and, the other, and to the other an aroma from life to life. Now, in my evangelism class, around the third class, I asked this question. What is the goal, other than glorify God, what is the goal of evangelism? What are you trying to accomplish when you are there sharing the gospel with another person? Now, in an earlier time in my life, I would have said to lead that person to Christ, right? Because if you are sharing the gospel, 
you're appealing to them to be saved, you want to see them convert. Yet this is a very, very dangerous idea. Because what you do when you say that it is your job to convert the other person is you are taking God's job upon yourself. Because it's only God who can convert the other individual. There is a very popular pastor who has taken that responsibility upon himself, who said, if I can find the key to anyone's heart, I can lead them to Christ. That's a very terrible and awesome responsibility. Because what he is doing unwittingly is people's salvation is determined upon him and not the Lord. And if that is your objective in sharing your faith, if you think that it's up to you to lead other people to Christ, you will be discouraged. Because you are taking the weight and the burden, the responsibility of the Holy Spirit upon yourself. And that is such an awesome, crushing burden that no one, save for God, can bear it. The goal is not to lead the other person to Christ. The goal is this, to preach the gospel in such a way that people can accept it or reject it. Let me say that again. The goal of successful evangelism is to preach the gospel in such a way that people can either accept it or reject it. And once you do that, once you spread the pure gospel, what you'll find is two very distinct and different reactions. One gospel, two reactions. One smell, two reactions. One of the national dishes in Hungary, which is loved passionately by many Hungarians, is called fried blood. They would drain the blood from a pig or a cow and deep fat fried and lard, put it in this sausage type of thing, then slice it up, warm it up, and eat it. It is loved so passionately that some of the Hungarian staff, when they were confronted with the prohibition in Acts about not eating blood, said, I will use my liberty in Christ to eat it anyway. And I'm thinking, more power to you. See, when they open up the little package, they smell the fragrance of an ancient Hungarian delicacy. But when I took a whiff, it was a smell of death. Absolute hideous. One smell, the same smell, yet two different reactions. If we use this imagery with a Roman triumph, we hear, we read about or we hear about the, the fragrance and the garlands that are disseminating a beautiful fragrance in the air. And to the victorious soldiers, to that victorious general, it is a sweet smell of victory, the sweet smell of life. But to the conquered soldiers, whose death is sure, whose only purpose is to magnify the general by being a hideous display of the enemy, whose execution is sure after the ceremonies and festivities are done, it is a smell of death. The gospel in its pure form divides people the gospel in its pure form leads people to a saving knowledge of christ causes them to kneel and worship the lord but it is met by a hardness of heart it is a confrontation of their own eminent certain doom and when it's presented in its full form you can see why people tried to stone paul you can see why people got really nasty at him because it is the smell of death to those who are perishing one smell two different reactions in the same way when we share the gospel 
we must understand that what we have to do is not worry about the results, but glorifying God. And understanding that we glorify God by our faithfulness, but also by their reaction. Now, when someone becomes saved, it's very obvious how that glorifies God, right? Because the scale falls from their eyes. They bow the knee, they submit to the Lordship of Christ, and their lives are changed. They're a living testimony of His grace and the power and the transformation of His Holy Spirit. And when they die and go to heaven, they will worship and adore the Father forever. That glorifies God. I don't need to sell you on that. But what about when people reject it? How does it glorify God when you share the gospel to someone and they say, never share that with me again? And they die a hardened, rebellious sinner. Well, it glorifies God because it magnifies his righteousness. Because when that fallen unbeliever stands before the magnificent holy God at the great white throne judgment, and they say, I never knew, God will say, at 1030 on October 11th on Saturday, Joe Christian shared with you and you rejected his message. His righteousness will be vindicated. His justice will be elevated. And as hard as that is for us to understand, it does glorify God in a very real way. We must not be concerned. Personally, I enjoy it when people come to know the Lord. But that is not what drives me in evangelism. What should drive you in evangelism is seeing the gospel proclaimed, to see God honored, and to see those two reactions. Because when you do that, when you get a good reaction or a bad reaction, you know that you are doing something right. Let me repeat. Our goal is not to lead people to Christ. If that was a measure of a ministry, what would you do with Jeremiah? The weeping prophet who preached the hardened hearts and was met with little or no success. Or what would you do with Jesus? What happened at the end of his ministry? How many people were following him faithfully at that point in time? They were gone. What about Paul at the end of his life where he is abandoned in a Roman prison? Their life is not measured by the results but on how they fought the good fight of faith. In the same way, when you share the gospel, it's not about persuading the other person to become a Christian, although we do want to persuade them, but it's about whether or not you are preaching the gospel in such a way that people can accept or reject it. And that takes us to our final point, that you must respect the gospel. Why is Paul so content with simply preaching the gospel? The reason why is a pure gospel message has power. He recognizes that it is not his message, but it is a message that he's been entrusted with. It is a message that has been given from God. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians 2.17 with me. Paul says this, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. When preaching the gospel, we must understand that our Message is not our own. It belongs to somebody else. It belongs to the holy, magnificent creator God who will judge the living and the dead. See, when he says that we are not like many peddling the word of God, Paul is making an indirect reference to many false teachers within the Corinthian church as well as throughout all the Mediterranean who are using the gospel and elements of the gospel for their own personal gain. The term to peddle denotes palming something off as genuine to unfairly make a profit. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used in Isaiah 122 to describe wicked and corrupt merchants in Jerusalem who were diluting wine and selling it. 
They were misrepresenting something. They were con men, all about making personal greed. And the reason why this is so, actually, there's three reasons why this is extremely offensive. One, to try to peddle the gospel has a false presupposition. To think that you can sell the gospel places more faith in you as a gospel preacher than in the gospel itself. If you believe that you can sell the gospel, you are placing more faith in the gospel preacher than the message itself. The proclaimer believes that he, not the Holy Spirit, is the one who can lead people to Christ. And if you look at the end of verse 16, does Paul believe that? Even when he talks about disseminating the gospel, he asks a rhetorical question, who is sufficient for all these things? The answer is not Paul. It's no one apart from the grace of Christ. It is only through him and his strength and his power that you can even preach the gospel. The second problem with believing that you can peddle the gospel, that you can sell it, is that when you sell the gospel, you must make a profit off of it. And to make a profit, you must get more people to buy it. Now, anyone with any business acumen would know that if you're going to sell a product and become rich off of it, you have to get a lot of people to buy it. Now, if you only have a target market of 100 people, you have to figure out a way to expand that target market. So it's not just the people, let's say, in this church or in this row, but people throughout Burbank, throughout the entire world who will purchase your product. Now, the problem when applying this to the gospel is that the gospel only has one target market, the elect. Those are the only people to which the gospel will be the smell of life. So what you must do if you want to make more money and profit off of it is somehow get the people to which the gospel is a smell of death to believe that it's a smell of life. And he can't do that by changing the people because only God can do that. The only means you can get the non-elect to embrace the gospel is by changing the gospel. The only way that you can get the non-elect to accept the gospel is by changing the gospel, to make it appealing to them, to tickle their ears. And there's an example of this that is pervasive throughout many well-meaning evangelical Christians. It's called the felt need gospel. People go around telling the lost people how God can give you a better marriage. God can help you overcome depression. God can get you out of debt. God can rescue your life from yourself. He can give you meaning. He can give you happiness. He can help you raise a good family. He can help you get a better job. He can help you get rich. God can do all these things for you. What these people are doing is they're trying to get people to accept a God who will be a cosmic genie who will help them in their own self-glorification. There's no mention of casting down your crown before the Lord. There's no mention of rescinding everything and following Jesus. There's no mention of giving up your beloved sin. It's all about what God can do for you and how God can help you out. And it's a tragic, tragic warping of the gospel. When we share the gospel, we must present it for what it really is, as we'll talk about later. And finally, a watered-down gospel distorts the gospel. Now, let's say you were diagnosed with a rare disease that can only be cured by a very expensive drug. So you go to the pharmacist, you, and you give him your prescription, and see how expensive this drug is, he decides to save some money by diluting your prescription. Now, he has just condemned you. Because it's not the type of drug which will preserve your life, but it is the dosage of the drug. Both of those things work together. 
Now, you might proclaim certain parts of the gospel which are true, but it's not enough to know that God loves you. There's more to it. There's more of a complete comprehensive gospel. The whole gospel must be presented in its entirety. And oftentimes, we may not try to peddle the word of God to make a profit, but we still try to be faithful to God in sharing the gospel, but try to get people to like us at the same time. We're reticent to bring up those issues that might cause them to respond poorly. Doctrines such as hell or their sin or even repentance. We won't tell them that if you are going to become a Christian, you're going to have to break off your adulterous affair. If you're going to become a Christian, you must change your lifestyle. We're reticent because we're afraid of the reaction. But when we share the gospel, we must remember that we cannot peddle it because it is not our message. The fundamental fallacy with distorting the gospel is that it is not your gospel to distort. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4.1. 1 Corinthians 4.1. This is how Paul regards himself and how he regards the gospel. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward is a slave who has been entrusted with something valuable. Now, let's say you were the housekeeper for Shaquille O'Neal. And he allowed you to take his brand new gilded gold full deluxe Hummer. Two or three million dollars. I mean, it is just pristine and expensive. How careful would you be in driving that car? knowing that you're going to have to answer to a seven-foot-three muscle-bound juggernaut. Very careful. Once around the driveway, and that would be it. You'd be very careful because it's highly precious, and you know who you're going to answer to. Now, in the same way with the gospel, whose gospel is it? It's not ours. We're stewards of it. Just like Shaquille O'Neal gave us that Hummer, God has given us this gospel to be a steward and to use it for those purposes. So how should we treat it? Well, if you look at the rest of verse 17, we see this. So we speak, but as from sincerity, but, but as from sincerity, but, but, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So you must speak it with sincerity, with genuineness, representing the authenticity of the gospel, not perverting it, not changing it, not peddling it, as we mentioned earlier. But secondly, you must speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, let's say Jack were to come up to you and were to tell you, as your elder, I decree that you must preach from this pulpit next Sunday. And furthermore, we're going to give everybody in this church sermon evaluation forms by which we will all read to you in front of the whole congregation. And for you women, we'll have a special women only service so we don't defile any consciences here. How would you respond in that case? Well, you'd panic, you'd have anxiety, you would... You know, try to talk Jack out of it, but when he stands firm and you know that you must do it, you would study like a fiend. You would read books on preaching. You'd study your passage. You'd master it. You would seek to get training. You'd say, Jack, help me learn how to preach. But what about the gospel? See, when you preach, it's not preaching in front of you that terrifies me. It's the fact that I'm preaching in front of God. 
we preach Christ in the sight of God. I preach in front of God and that God is the one, not your sermon evaluations, but God's sermon evaluations is the one I should be especially concerned of. Ultimately, he is the one that we have to answer to. Now, if you would take all that effort in preaching and proclaiming from up here in this pulpit, what about the pulpit that you use when you share Christ with somebody else? Do you study the gospel? Do you seek to get trained in the gospel? Do you try to figure out what it is? Do you want to represent God's gospel in the purest, most pristine form? Or do you play fast and loose with it? You would never tolerate any preacher here in this pulpit who played fast and loose with the scriptures. God wouldn't tolerate it. So what makes you think that God might tolerate a shoddy gospel presentation? one that's man-centered, one that doesn't represent him well, one that's disorganized, one that leads to confusion, one that can't even save the elect because it's so distorted. You preach in Christ in the sight of God. It is a tremendous accountability, one that might make us reluctant to, to even share it, but we'll be called into account for that too. Really, there's no way out. You can't avoid it by not sharing it, and if you do share it, you need to be diligent and study it. God doesn't call all of you to master, you know, how to teach and preach the word, but he does call you to share your faith, to be good stewards of the mysteries of God. And you must set your mind and your hearts of mastering the gospel message, to look at it over and over again, critiquing yourself, am I preaching the true gospel? See, when we speak in Christ in the sight of God, We must remember who we will answer to. We must remember that it's not our message, but it's God. And Lord willing, that will help you share the gospel. So that brings us to our application points. How do you apply this sermon? How do you make sure that you are a successful evangelist? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to make sure that you are conquered. You must examine your life. Is there any sin in your life which you are reluctant to give up? Perhaps a personal idol. Perhaps you haven't been loving your wife or disrespectful to your husband. Perhaps you've been cheating in school. Perhaps you've been looking at images on the internet which you really shouldn't look at. Perhaps you've just been unfaithful. You have a fear of man complex. You need to repent of that too. Take a hard look at your life and make sure that one, you are saved if you're not. And if you are saved, that you have a clear conscience and that your heart is right before God. Two, Take the evangelism class starting this Thursday at 7 o'clock. If you guys have a shoddy gospel presentation, I'll help you with that. Come to the class. We'll teach you how to share the gospel so that when you preach Christ in the sight of God to the lost, you might have some semblance of what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. We want to help you at this church. We want to help and equip every one of you to share your faith. And if you can't make the evangelism class, call my secretary and ask for a tape. You can teach it to yourself. Many people have done it, have done so successfully. If that doesn't work, come talk to me. I'd love to help any and all of you to learn how to share your faith. Perhaps take you with me, and we can go witnessing. But the point is, if you don't know how to share your faith, or even if your gospel presentation is not very good, you need help and you need training, and you need to take it seriously. Number three, you need to pray for opportunities to share your faith. Pray that God will open the door Four, practice with your family members. For those of you who are fathers and you're looking for a family devotional topic, why not have your kids learn how to share the gospel? Why don't you take a month, this next month, and 
every Sunday that you get together, whenever you have your family devotionals, have them analyze each point of the gospel. Make sure they comprehend it and that they could share it. Five, memorize the gospel. Memorize key verses. Number six, pray for faithfulness, not results. Understanding that is your effort is how you do it. It's not the end result. And number seven, examine your own objectives in sharing your faith and see how they compare with the Bible. For those of you who have realized that you got it all wrong, that you've been trying to share to convert people, not to glorify God, rethink about it. Because honestly, I'll tell you a personal testimony from my point. When I was in Myrtle Beach on the summer mission project, I would share the gospel over and over again. And I believe that it was up to me to persuade those people to become Christians. I was in high school debate, and so I'd argue, I'd zigzag, say all these things, and try to get the perfect combination so that I can lead any and everybody to Christ. And there was one night where nothing worked at all. People yelled at me. They called me a Jesus freak. They tell me to get out of here. And I went back to my room on the verge of tears because I thought I couldn't help these people. And that made that truth and that false theology almost discouraged me entirely from sharing my faith. Perhaps many of you as young, zealous Christians were sharing your faith quite a bit, but when nobody responded, you just gave it up. Well, you have been a victim of having the wrong view of successful evangelism. You didn't realize that it was just to glorify God alone, that you just have to be faithful, that you just have to accurately present it. And once I understood that it's God's job and not my job to share my faith, that burden, that crushing responsibility of converting people was lifted from me, and I just had full freedom to share my faith. I just had to make sure that my life was conquered, that I was walking with the Lord, that I was a living example. I just had to make sure that I was pleasing God, not trying to draw attention to myself, but that I was faithful and persevering and suffering all for his glory. I had focused on on the proclamation and whether or not they're able to understand it, not the results, and I was able to respect and really maintain the gospel, studying it continually. Even to this day, I still critique my gospel presentation and make sure that it's accurate, looking to fine-tune it. And I implore you to go out and share the gospel, but to do it successfully and keep these points in mind. And Lord willing, that is his desire, our church will be a bright beacon of hope to Burbank and will be the smell of death to many and that will glorify God. But Lord willing, might he just give us a tremendous harvest of souls that many people in this church will have the privilege of leading someone to the Lord. But more importantly, that will go out there continually and faithfully knowing that God is honored by how we share our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time. And Lord, we do pray for this great city. We pray that you'll take the blinders off their hearts, that you'll soften it. And Lord, that our church will plant the seeds of the gospel. That we'll be faithful. Lord, that we will suffer in the process, that we will not be hindered by any obstacles that Satan or the world throws at us. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has not been conquered, who has not yielded their life completely to you, that they will do so. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.